Christians have believed through the centuries and across denominational lines. So we're not looking at some of the specifics or peculiarities of Calvary Church. We're looking at the things that Christians have believed through the centuries and across denominational lines. And part of the reason that we're doing this series this fall is we've got a number of new things coming online. We've got our site that's, that's going to start early next year. We've got a number of new adventures. We're expanding disability ministry, bridge, all those things. It's important for us whenever we do something new to remind ourselves of the center. Remind ourselves of the foundation on which everything gets built. And so that foundation is what we believe in the Bible, what we believe about God, what we believe about ourselves, and what we believe about the mission of Jesus. That is the core of all that we do. Don't get distracted by the details. Remember the center. Well, we started the series a number of weeks ago now by taking communion together. And we talked about the gospel in broad strokes. And we said the gospel is all about connection. Being connected to God, connected to Jesus, connected with each other in community, and connected with a future that we don't deserve. We then talked about the Bible And we talked about its reliability, its authority, and the purpose of the Bible is to lead us to Jesus and help us grow closer to him. We then talked about faith and what it actually means to believe, trust, and faith. What does that look like according to the Bible's categories rather than according to our cultural understanding? And last week we took 30, 35 minutes and learned all we need to know about God. Oh, that's not true, but we kind of scratched the surface a little bit and looked at a a passage where God reveals himself to Moses in some pretty exciting ways that have ramifications not just in his life, but in our lives as well. Well, you'll be happy to know that this morning we come to a theological topic that you are all really familiar with. In fact, many of you are experts, world class. This morning we're going to look at sin. And I can tell by looking, some of you are really good at it. Now, we really don't need the Bible to understand something about sin. Now, it's nice to have the Bible, and the Bible tells us the backstory that we'll kind of talk about a little later. But all we would need to understand that something's wrong with our world would be a number of buses that we'd all leave the room. We're not doing it, by the way. We're all going to leave, get on the buses, drive down 309, and go into Barnes & Noble. You'd walk in, and first of all, you'd buy your $9 coffee. You know, you get a caramel, macchiato, suey, super hot, extra this, two shots of that. You know, you get your $9 coffee, and then you would wander around. So let me ask you to see uh, how many of you shop on bookstores or online. What would be the largest section in Barnes & Noble bookstore? The self-help section. That's exactly right. And so for $29.95, you can discover your problem and the solution to your problem. Self-help sections in bookstores are enormous. Maybe there's the section that'll help you get financial peace and prosperity. The real cure, the real solution for finance is use the cash system and put it in envelopes. Stay away from credit cards or use them appropriately. Everybody has a system, right? So financial health, that's what you need. If that's your problem, the books will help you fix yourself if your problem is finances. Maybe your problem is your body. You go to the body section where they teach you how to eat kale and bark and gravel and stuff like that. You put it in a blender and you drink that stuff and it kind of makes you healthy and fix your body or it kills you, either one. And then there's the part on relationships. I mean, it's row after row after row, right? 
because men are from somewhere and women are from somewhere else, and that kind of creates a problem. And how do you maintain relationships and grow in relationships? And the relational self-help section is huge. And then it's not just that. Then there's the be a whole self section. Have you seen this? Because you want to be a whole self, not a part. I'm not sure what that means, but I want to be a whole self, don't you? You don't want to be a partial self. So you can figure out how to be a whole self. And for, you know, 40 bucks, you can buy the big book on how to be a whole self rather than a partial self. Well, you know, the sad story is churches actually sometimes pick up on that self-help mentality. Did you notice that? And so sermon series become six steps to overcome doubt. Now think about that. One, cure way, one sure way to increase your doubt, have a sermon on six ways to fix your doubt. Because when you try them, they don't work anyway. You doubt more when you're done, right? Five ways to a healthier, happier marriage. A better sex life with these practices, right? It's always fix yourself. Well, wait a minute. Can I say it as boldly as this? Our main problem is not finance. Your main problem is not your body. I know you may think that. Your main problem is not eating a certain way or not eating a certain way. The Bible repeatedly says our main problem is sin. And if we could somehow understand the drama behind sin, maybe we'd be able to resist and maybe we'd be able to experience life a little bit more as God intended. Now here's what we're going to do. We're going to look a little bit at the problem, the results. Now again, you know the problem, you live the results, but we're going to use the Bible. But then we're going to talk about the drama behind sin because I know you know the action and you know the results, but the Bible gives us the backstory. And it's an understanding the backstory that we really need to figure out where the fight happens. And then lastly, we'll look at the remedy. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 2 and 3. We're not going to read a section for a little while. I'll put some verses up on the screen. But we're going to start by looking at the problem. The problem in a nutshell begins in 2 and the problem appears in three. And as you read through the Bible, there aren't many chapters that don't describe, define, or portray sin. We get a couple chapters at the beginning, and then all, everything that follows that, almost every chapter of the Bible describes, defines, portrays, or shows us what sin looks like or its results. Every chapter. Well, we're going to see where it all begins, because in the beginning, and the drama behind that beginning we can understand how to understand, but then how to be transformed. Well, the problem's presented as God gives a prohibition in chapter 2. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now think about that. God puts man and woman in paradise and gives them one prohibition. How many rules do you have at your house? Like, you know, that somebody else created, right? I'll tell you what, we have a whole lot more than one at my house. Well, Adam and Eve had one, one command. Don't eat from this particular tree. Now, it's important to realize God didn't say, don't eat from this tree, and here are 14 reasons why, right? So God didn't say, don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil because it's fattening. You know, if God did say that, some of you wouldn't have eaten it. Others of you would have said, let me at that tree, right? There are donuts hanging on the tree. God doesn't say don't eat from the tree because it has too many carbs. Don't eat from the tree because it's too sweet, it'll rot your teeth. Don't eat from the tree because all human history will go down the toilet if you eat. God doesn't say anything, he just says don't eat. Prohibition, one prohibition. Well, in the next chapter, here's what we read in chapter 3. She took some and ate it. 
She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Now, think about that. God said, God, right? Don't eat, she ate, he ate. That's the problem. God says don't, they do. In a lot of other cases, God says do and we don't. But that's the problem. Now, the Bible has lots of different words to help us understand the nuances of sin. And we're not going to go through them all. But let me mention a few of the different categories. Some biblical words for sin have the uh, nuance of premeditation. And that idea is you're lying on your bed at night. You're planning what's going to happen the next day. You're planning that rendezvous. You're planning that dialogue. You're planning that conversation. You're planning that incident. You're planning ahead. And what you're planning isn't very good. You're premeditating on what's going to happen, right? Meditation, turning it over and over and over in your head. You're premeditating, but you're premeditating living outside of the bounds that God called you to live. You ever do that? Well, that's one category of sin, premeditated sin. Then there's another category for sin, just kind of spur of the moment. You didn't think about it. You didn't come up with this big elaborate strategic plan. Something happens and you just run with it, right? You know, you lust in the moment. You, uh, you know, you're a glutton in the moment, you do something in the moment, right? You shoplift in the moment. Um, something, you didn't plan it. You didn't work out all the details. Something comes up and you run with your appetite. You run with your desire. You run with that interference. You just kind of run with it. Premeditation, others just kind of in the moment. The one word that often serves as kind of the umbrella or the overarching word for sin is the word that means to miss the mark. You miss the mark. You miss the target. And I wanted to mention this because sometimes I think we get the wrong picture in mind. When we think of sin as missing the mark, here's what I think we sometimes picture. You're at a shooting range, right? So you get your rifle out, you put it in that little thing because you can't hold it still, so you lock it in that little thing, right? And you kind of look down range and you aim, 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 fire. Oh, darn, you're a half inch off to the right. You must not turn this side. That's not the idea. The idea is not that you're aiming at the right target and you aim, aim, and you just miss it by a hair. But if you're off by a half here, 200 yards down the range, you're off by three inches. That's not the idea. The idea of missing the mark is you're aiming at the wrong target. That's the idea. When you miss the mark, you're not aiming at the target God wants you to aim at. God says don't eat. They're not aiming at the don't eat target. They're aiming at the eat target. Missing the mark means we're aiming at the wrong thing. So you get the idea? Do you have that problem? I'm sure you do. Um, Paul says it this way in the New Testament. Tell me if this isn't your story. God says don't, and I do. God says do, and I don't. What the heck is up with that? Is that your story? Well, that's the Apostle Paul's story. That's certainly our story. We miss the mark by aiming at the wrong target. We premeditate living outside of bounds. In the spur of the moment, we run with our gut rather than run with what God says. We all have the problem. We have the illness. The problem is sin. Well, what are the results? What comes from this? Well, again, we really don't need the Bible for this. Um, the res primary result of sin is alienation. Alienation. We started this series a number of weeks ago. Some of you think, yeah, about four years ago. It wasn't that long. It was a few weeks ago. But we talked about sin, or we talked about the gospel in terms of remembering. And I said that what we have to do when we remember is to get the weakened little remember word out of our mind. Remember doesn't just mean to recall something. 
remember means to connect something. So our bodies have lots of members. When does your body need its members remembered? When they've been dismembered. Halloween's coming. You watching all these horror movies? Lots of dismembering going on, right? Arms cut off, legs cut off, heads cut off. Bodies are dismembered. Remembering means you take the dismembered parts and you put them back together. So we said the gospel, Jesus' mission, is all about remembering, connection. Connecting us to God, connecting us with Jesus, connecting us with ourselves, connecting us with other people, reconnecting us with the future we were intended for. All about connection. Well, what's the problem? Sin dismembers. The gospel remembers. That's the point. Well, what gets dismembered with sin? Well, just look at how it unfolds in chapter 3. You'll see a lot of dismembering going on. So here's how it starts. The man and his wife heard. So they eat of the tree, right? The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. That has to be one of the saddest verses in all the Bible. The idea is every day before this, God would show up in the garden and Adam and Eve, just like your golden retriever puppy, would run to meet them, right? But this day God shows up in the garden and Adam and Eve run the other way. You know what that's like, right? Somebody sins against you. You sin against somebody. You want to get as far away from them as possible as fast as you can, right? Sin alienates. It separates. Animals even know that, right? Your dog misbehaved. It chewed the leg off your favorite chair. You walk, what did you do? Dog's head goes down. Tail goes between its legs, slinks out of the room. Now, if the cat chewed the leg, looks back and smiles at you, right? Yeah. (laughs) It was me. It was me, right? But a dog, see, dogs are repentant in that way. Um, Yeah, alienation. It happens with Adam and Eve and God. It happens still in our lives with God. But it's not just with God. Adam and Eve are disconnected from themselves. They were designed by God, in God's image, to live under God's authority. They were to be stewards, submissive to Him. They don't know who they are anymore, right? They are disconnected from a true identity. Now they want to be God. Now they want to call the shots. They no longer know who they are. Um, Genesis 3 says it like this. They're naked and now they're ashamed. You know what that's like, right? I mean, imagine if we're all dressed like this in here and you come in and you're naked. What's the first thing you want to do? You want to cover up and it would sure be nice if other people were naked too so you could look at their roles and their mess and you could say, oh yeah, right? And isn't that the game we play, right? We want to cover and we want to expose other. That's because we've lost our identity, who we are. Oh yeah, but it's also alienation from each There are only two people. They're alienated from each other, look. God says, Adam, what did you do? Did you eat? Now, look at Adam. Well, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Now, think for a moment how serious this is. In chapter 2, we read it, verses 16 and 17, God said, don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. When you eat of it, you will surely die. You know what Adam's saying? Here's what Adam's saying. Lord, you said we shouldn't eat from the tree. If we eat of it, we'll die. It's really Eve's fault, so if you want to kill her, go ahead. Right? I'm not lying. Right? If, if the solution to the problem is taking her out and I just live in the garden, I'm good with that. Um, how frosty was the bedroom that night? 
right? Uh, yeah. Well, the woman, you notice, he's even indicting God, though, right? I mean, think about this. He's the God that created everything, and Adam says, well, you know, Lord, Eve was the immediate cause, but you gave her to me. Behind Eve, is you're the one that screwed this whole deal up here. Oh, boy, the arrogance, right? Yeah, separated from each other. But that's not the end of the story. Also alienated from nature. Look at this. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you'll eat food all the days of your life. How many of you ever, ever get discouraged, anxious, or just ticked off at work? Raise your hand. It all goes back to Genesis 3. all goes back to Genesis 3. Nature kind of worked as an ally up until Genesis 3. Now, nature is an enemy. Now, nature works against you and against me. Now, it's through the sweat of our brow. Now, it's through toilsome labor, through anxiety, through discouragement, through lots of difficulty and anger. That's how we make a living now. There's going to be pain in childbirth, desire for a different role, and there's going to be work, and it's going to be drudgery and pain. And since it was an agrarian world back then, thorns, thistles, and weeds are going to grow. You know that story, right? How hard do you have to work to get flowers to come up in the beds and your lawn to grow? How hard do you have to work to get the weeds to grow? Now, you don't do anything, right? They just grow. And you can't stop them from growing. Yeah, but it's hard to grow the stuff you want to grow. Yeah. So alienation is at least in four directions, right? The four, you know, the multifaceted alienation of sin. Separation from, alienation from God, from ourselves, from each other, and the world. Now, I want to do a little stop right there and say something else. If alienation because of sin comes in those four areas, the gospel brings reconciliation in those same four areas. The mission of Jesus is to reconcile us with God, right? Remember us with God to connect us with the right identity with who we are, connect us with each other in community, and connect us to the world. And we should be experiencing that to some degree, and when Christ returns, we will experience that in fullness. Now you may say, why is that so important? Well, because that's why we do the things we do. So we, uh, we do evangelism at Calvary Church. We do marshmallow madness and we bring kids in to have a good time and help them understand a little bit better about the mission of Jesus. And we do men's breakfast bowl and you're going to learn about that and who's coming and all that in a couple of weeks. Part of the reason for we're building relationships so people can see and hear the gospel and be connected, reconnected with God. But we also have a counseling center where people can understand how they're made and understand a correct self-image. And we have community groups and small groups and home groups and men's Bible study and women's Bible study. And we work at racial reconciliation and we have an urban priority and we have a toy store where we provide toys at low, super low prices and we connect with our brothers and sisters in Philadelphia. And we have a benevolence fund where we take a collection every time we have communion together and we use that money so people can pay for heat, oil and gas and electricity and food to shop and gas for their cars. Because alienation comes in four areas, spiritual, psychological, social, and the, the world, nature, and the gospel needs to bring reconciliation in all four, and we need to be working in all four of those things. And sometimes the church gets so focused on reconciliation with God, which is absolutely essential, 
that we lose sight of everything. The sin brings alienation in lots of areas, and the gospel brings reconciliation in all those same areas. That's why we do all that we do. See how that works? Now, you know the results, right? But what's the drama behind the action? So we looked at the problem, and we looked a little bit at the results, and you know the problem. You live the problem, and you experience the results. But what's the backstory? Well, if you have your Bibles, let me read the first six verses from Genesis 3 and listen to the drama that plays out between the prohibition and the action. Here's what's going on. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Now what's going on? What's that whole conversation? Does Satan ask an honest question when he says, now, I'm just trying to figure out like what God said. Can, can you help me? Did God say, just inform, for information purposes, did God say you can't eat from any of these trees? Um, we'll do a little quiz. Did God know what he said? Did God know what he said? Yes. Did Adam know what God said? Yes. Did Eve know what God said? Yes. Did Satan know what God said? Yes. Well, then what the heck's up with the question? The question is painting a different backdrop. The question changes the context. Let me explain it like this. Suppose you uh, take a four-year-old or a five-year-old, your kids, grandkids, a friend, you, you take a four-year-old and a five-year-old to Toys R Us this afternoon. You walk down aisle one, you say, see anything you like in this aisle? Whoa, yeah. Do you want any of this? I want this, I want that. In fact, I want everything. Good, get, we'll get a big cart next time. See anything you want? No, this is a girl's aisle. That is a boy's eye. Okay, next time. See anything? Yeah. I want that and I want this. Okay, next time. See anything you want? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't believe it. It's fun, isn't it? We're going shopping today. Anything else? By the time you're finished, right, the little kid's kind of salivating. Yes, yes, yes. And just before you leave the store, you get down on one knee and say, you know why I brought you here today? To show you all those great toys that you want. You're not getting a single one of them ever. You're never getting a truck. You're never getting a doll. You're never getting a, a computer. You're never getting anything. I just brought you sh here to show you what you're not getting the rest of your life. Wow. Or another way, take a husband or a man to Home Depot. Walk up and down. Anything, anything you like here? Yeah. Power tool aisle. Yeah. Anything you want here? Yeah. Up and down, right? Suppose you come to the end. I just want you to know you're not getting any of it ever. You're never getting a power drill, never getting it, never, ever, any of it. I say, thank you, God, right? But some, some people say, all right, another one. Take your wife or a woman to Pottery Barn. See anything in here? You're like, yeah, right? Drooling in the eye. Yeah. Do you want any of this? Do you need any of it? Yeah. You're not getting any of it ever. 
you're going to have what you better take care of what you got. That's all you're getting forever. And what you have, we may send that back, right? Okay, now, now here's the bottom line of that story. Every one of us in this room think of God exactly like that. I know you do. We think that God's going to withhold all the good stuff from us, right? We've got to negotiate with God. We've got to do all these good things to twist his arm. We've got to eke a blessing out of him. You know all the joy you would have if you had. What's God's mission is to make your life miserable, right? And so we then shift into, uh-oh, I've got to do something because God's not going to give me what I really want and what I really need. That's the backdrop that's getting painted. That's the change in the context. That's why those questions are getting asked. They're not just questions. They're questions with a purpose. Those questions are saying, you really can't trust that God. You mean to tell me a loving God would put you in a garden like this and tell you what you can't do? What you can't have? What kind of a God would do that? See? When you change the context, you tarnish God's character. When you tarnish his character, we doubt his goodness. And here's how the process always works. When you doubt God's love and goodness, you will disobey his word. You have to. And so what, with the process going on, Adam and Eve begin to doubt God's goodness. They doubt that God has their best interest in mind. They doubt that he really loves them. They begin to think, wait, God doesn't want us to become like him, right? That's what Satan says. God doesn't want you to become like him. God knows if you eat this, you're going to be like him. He doesn't want you to have that. He, he wants to withhold all the good stuff from you. If you want what you really want, you better take matters in your own hands and look out for yourself because God's not looking out for you. Once you doubt God's love, you will disobey God's word. You have to. Because you don't believe God has your best in mind. You don't believe that God's looking out for you. Well, you better look out for yourself then. In fact, think of it in reverse. Think of the last uh, sin you committed, you know, like probably after you entered the auditorium. <laughs> think of the last sin you committed. I'd be willing to bet. If you thought long and hard enough about it, you would be able to see behind that sin that you doubted God's love and God's goodness. Therefore, you took matters in your own hand and you went with your plan rather than God's. The crux of sin is taking God's place, his rightful place in your life. Uh, when I first became a Christian in college, uh, in crew, they used to have these two circles that kind of describe two different lives. And he said, oh, this is so simplistic. Um, you know, the more I think about it, there's something to the circles. Here's how the circles work. The one circle um, had a little chair. Well, both circles had a chair in the middle of them, right? On the one chair, symbolizing a throne for the life, kind of the decision-making authority of the life, on the one chair was a cross. And so that life was represented by Jesus on the throne, right? God is the authority. The other circle on the chair had self written. You know what sin is? Underneath every act of sin is God being dethroned and you being enthroned. Every time. That's what's going on. Oh, yeah, and the rest of the circles? The circle with the cross on the throne all the circles around, you know, all the little parts of the life are in order and correct proportion. The circle where self is on the throne, the circles are all messed up. The circle's kind of disjointed and discombobulated. Kind of sounds like the results of sin 
and the results of living in sync with what God says. Now, when we, uh, so self-centeredness, right, putting ourselves in that position rather than God, that's the main problem, we then use, manipulate, and exploit everything else to get what we want. If we're on the chair, we're on the throne of our lives, we name what we want. We list what would make us happy. We know what we want. Everybody else, everything else gets used for me to reach my goal. Now, you can do that by living a rebellious life, engaging in all kinds of sin. You can also do that by living a very moral life and living a very righteous life. And here's a really good way to do it. You can be like super religious and try to use God to get what you want. You see, that explains when you read through the Bible all these cases that may not seem to make sense if you don't understand the backstory. You ever read the Bible, Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, where God says things like this, I hate your sacrifices. Don't go doing any more of that ritual at the temple. You say, wait a minute, God, you're the one that invented it. Now you're telling me not to do it. Yeah, but the chair got dethroned and enthroned. God says, do this with me in the center. When self's on the throne, we say, I'll jump through the hoops. I'll do what God wants me to do. So now God will give me what I want. You're using God. Everything's revolving around you. You see how that works? That's the backstory. That's what's underneath. When you doubt God's goodness and God's love, you will disobey God's word. And when you disobey his word, sometime, somewhere in the backstory, you're doubting God's provision, God's care, and that God has your best interest in mind. It always works that way. Well, we're not going to end with that. We're going to end with the remedy. The remedy. Now, you don't get the full-blown remedy until you get to the New Testament, right? When kind of Jesus shows up, the remedy. But even in Genesis 3, you have hints of the remedy. It, it, it's hinted, right? And we kind of smile, right? Because we know where this whole thing's going. Here's the first hint. Verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Remember what I said? Sin brings alienation. When somebody sins against you, you sin against somebody else. You want to get as far away as fast as possible. Adam and Eve sin against God. God comes looking for them. Is that what you do when somebody sins against you? Somebody sins against you, you go to hunt them down to love them? Remember, God's omniscient. Did, can, can, did he really lose them? He doesn't know where they are. Adam, where the heck are you? I've been looking around. I can't find you. Adam know, God knows where Adam and Eve went before they knew they were going there, right? It's, he didn't lose them. He knows where they are. He's asking a question for their good and for our benefit, right? Where God goes looking for them. And here's the point. God takes the first step knowing the rest of the journey. We often take the first step without knowing where that road's going to lead. We're doing some work in our kitchen. We took a first step without knowing. I didn't know where it was going to lead. The first step was we had a pizza box stain on our dining room table. That was there for a couple of years. And to tell you the truth, I never noticed it. But eventually it was brought to my attention. And rather than get the pizza box thing fixed from the table, we needed a new dining room table. So we got a new dining room table, right? Step one. Okay, we got the new dining room table. We're done. Oh, no, 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 no. Because the new dining room table now does not match the bench on the side, and it doesn't match the cabinet that holds plates and stuff in the corner. 
So Kim shifts into chalk paint mode, and we, she chalks paints the bench, chalk paints the cabinet in the corner. Are we done? Oh, no, 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 no. Because now the chalk painted cabinet and bench and new table do not match the walls very well. So now we have to get the kitchen painted to, you know, sync up with the new table and the cabinet and the bench. Are we finished yet? Oh, no, no, no. Because now the rug underneath the table it doesn't bring out the right colors of all of the new matrix, and so we need a new carpet for that. Yesterday, Kim asks me a question. So which do you like better for under the window, this bookcase or this, this table that we can put plants on? I'm willing to bet the table or the bookcase is not the end either, right? Here's the moral of the story. If you ever need a dining room table, just tear your house down and build another one. <laughs> you see, we often take the first step without knowing where the trip is going. God comes looking for Adam and Eve in the garden. And he knows every step of that road. He knows that that first step will lead to a step centuries later when his own son will put a cross on his back. And the next step of that journey is carrying it up a hill where the cross is taken off his back and he's nailed to the cross. And the father and the son are alienated from each other as he pays the price for our sin that brought alienation. You know, the amazing thing is not that God took the first step. It's that God took the first step knowing every other step that that first step was going to lead to. And he did it anyway. Now, can you trust a God like that? That's a God you should be able to submit to. That's a God you can trust. That's a God who you can believe in. That's a God who has your best interest in mind. Don't believe that backstory dialogue where the context is getting changed. God doesn't care. God doesn't love me. I need to take matters in your own hand. Yeah, you realize he took the first step knowing where that journey was going, and he did it for you. And right in the middle of the chapter, we have the first promise of the gospel. You can check out commentary. Here's what they say. The first mention of the gospel is Genesis 3.15. Here it is. God is speaking to the serpent. The one who changed the backdrop. The one who painted the wrong context. Here's what God said. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring, your offspring and hers. But make no mistake, the offspring of the woman will crush your head. But in the process, you will strike his heel. I told you God knew where this trip was going. And he did it anyway. Here's what God's saying in the middle, right in the middle of the chapter where the first sin occurs. The context is changed. The action occurs. Everything, all hell's breaking loose. And here's what God says. Sin and death will not be the end of this story. The end of this story will be reconciliation and life. Even if it means I will have my son's heel struck. But make no mistake. The enemy will be defeated at the price of my son's life. You can trust a God like that. I can trust a God like that. So the next time you're in the middle of that, changing the context, messing with the background, if you take matters in your own hand, you better step onto the throne of your life. Time out, time out. Can you trust a God like this? 
Should you listen to a God like this? Should you follow a God like this? You bet you should. And now we get to stand, pray, and leave as we follow. Let's stand. Father, we give you thanks for the reminder of the problem. For showing us that the results we experience, alienation in a multifaceted way, is not something we alone experience. It's been experienced through the centuries. Thanks for showing us the backstory, the inner dialogue, the conversation that we go through, and for the wrong seat that we take that brings about all of the negative results. But Lord, most of all, thanks for the remedy for sending Jesus. You took the first step, knowing where it would lead. Jesus, thanks for walking that road to tell us and show us that we can trust a loving, all-powerful, all-knowing God. Help us to do that well. Trusting his goodness and love and thereby obeying what he says to his glory, to our benefit, and to the ministry of other people. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.